Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, it is, uh, it is an unbelievable joy, as always, to be in the house of the Lord. Especially, I love summer around here because, uh, in my mind, June is that wonderful time of the year where the sun is so abundant and sometimes a few rainbows. The flowers are popping and the glorious valley mornings and evenings are just so beautiful. We are so blessed with the glitzies. The best thing about summer to me is serving God and being around fellow believers on Sunday and it seems like we have a lot of other special events. I so love Sundays of summer. Summer 22 here at the home church is going to be interesting. It is. I can't wait to have our next big event, Freedom Fest, and all the other ones coming. Never in America's history has it been any more important for God's people to stand up and say, We love God, we love the Bible, we are proud, flag waving Americans. So we're looking forward to that day. But today, Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be number 23 in our session. Our theme today is to put God first in everything. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord gave the most incredible and full menu of life-transforming and incredible principles. He began and established the groundwork by saying, the basis really of everything good in life. A believer starts with holiness. He called it the attitude to have. Commonly, we call that the beatitude. Eight amazing principles of how to be God-focused and god Daily attitudes. Then he said, Now here's the crazy thing and the downside. If you live like that, I'm afraid you're going to have and can expect some very bad treatment from some evil people. You're an influencer for God, you're going to be an attack. You're going to be attacked for sure. You're going to be a lightning rod for the devil. Be encouraged. God will have your back. Saying just a moment ago. Many spoke on a wide variety of topics. In fact, I am always just flabbergasted, frankly, at the segue that he goes between different topics in the Sermon on the Mount. He then goes to the permanence of the marriage covenant, how vital it is to have moral purity in the life. And then he gave the most incredible template for prayer. Lord's Prayer. It is six principles that are life principles. Then he just cautioned, said, now let's not be the kind of Christians that are all about the outside and be warned about virtue signals for personal gain. Then 
he gave some amazing bullet points on the very necessities of life and how that it is absolutely vital to never worry. Don't worry. Work hard and pray hard. He said, birds never worry. They're always happy. God takes care of them. Don't worry. Be happy. Now today, we're going to listen to the Lord's message on the importance of godly priorities. Someone expressed this about priorities. They said, if it's important to you, you will find a way. If not, you'll find an excuse. American educator and author, businessman, keynote speaker Stephen Covey, any business person here has read the book by him, he famously said in his book, First Things First, the key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. I'm glad to announce this morning that God didn't just leave us to wonder about what our priorities should be. God of the universe wrote it down in black and white, Holy Scripture. He said, here is how you prioritize your life. Always put God first. Maybe the children have it best. Their little song, they sing joy. Jesus. How do you spell joy? Jesus. Others. Jesus first. And others. And yourself last. Well, there he was, standing on the mountainside centuries ago, boldly proclaiming, you must prioritize God. If you don't prioritize God in your life, then soon He will be nothing more than an afterthought. You'll be like some people that I meet who say, oh yeah, I used to go, be faithful, do that, used to do that, but I don't know, I just really don't think they have time for it, or I'm not into organized religion, or a bunch of things, and they pretty much, for the most part, have forgotten God. If ever a message was important to this culture, it's this one. Because we live in a nation, we live in a world of vanishing values, therefore pathetic priorities. I'm not sure who stated it, but here's the good word. Values determine priorities. And priorities always determine success or failure. We live in a day of misplaced priorities. Our Lord said, if you want to get it right, do it this way. Always seek first the kingdom of God. Consider this lesson in priorities. At a nursing home in Florida, a resident group was discussing their ailments. My arms are so weak, I can't. To eat with this cup of coffee, said one. Yes, I know my cataracts are so bad I can't even see my coffee. I know. No, I can't even turn my head because all the arthritis in my neck. Said a third. Several people were nodding very weakly. My blood pressure pills make me dizzy when I'm old. Well, I guess that's the price we pay for getting old. Winston old man, he said, "Let it sure beat the alternative." And finally, one said, "Well, it's not that bad, really." Thank goodness we can still all drive. <laughs> well, are your priorities out of, today, out of place today? Are you so happy you can drive that not seeing the concerns around you? 
This morning we're going to talk about real priorities and how to get them right in our life. God first. Father, we thank you this morning. Forgive us, Lord, for lack of good priorities. Thank you for the blessing. And sweet song service today, Lord, my heart was touched. Lord, even from the beginning, many people I chatted with and loved on, and they loved me back. Thank you. I've been so encouraged to be a Thank you, God, for this amazing event. And for those, Lord, who are joining us online. We'll be after the fact. Lord, would you just uh, meet with them? I pray that they'll experience your presence as we have today. Jesus. World War II General and Senior Officer Omar Bradley said about the Sermon on the Mount We have grasped the mystery of the act, but rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical interests. All oh, the Sermon on the Mount, it is an amazing, amazing document. Well, today we're going to look at just two verses, the final two, chapter 6. So let's read those together, if you would, out loud. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 and verse 34. Right. Ready to begin, out of the beautiful King James Version. Ready to begin. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil. He starts verse 33 with the word by. It's a contrasting word. Unlike the pagan mindset, unlike the worldly mindset, unlike those whose mindset is just all about stuff in this world, you, as followers of Christ, you, as people that have been born again, children of God, have a much better view on life and therefore ought to think about things much differently. What kinds of things are we supposed to be thinking about? We're supposed to be thinking about the promises of God. Except for the Lord, we're supposed to be thinking about the things that make such a difference in life. We're supposed to be praying and having a great time in fellowship with God. You may remember that wonderful story given to us by the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 12. There in Luke chapter 12, Christ, our Savior, commended Mary. What did he commend her for? Well, look at verse 42. There she was, sitting at the feet of Jesus. She chose, while her sister Martha was about other things, she chose to hear the words of God. But one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part. Notice here in this verse all the priorities. There are things to choose. Things to choose, and there are things that are more needful than others. There's nothing wrong with doing the household duties. But the fact of the matter is, household duties will always be there. They're never going to stop. Even when you're done, you're not done. And that's why Jesus said, it's good, it's great to do them, but there comes a time when you have to choose to do something else. The truth of the matter is, people could just never go to church. They could never read their Bible. They could never pray. If we so desire, we could always say, well, we're so busy, we're so busy, we're so busy. Jesus said it's important to choose 
that good part, the best thing. One thing is need, but we simply need to pull away from the stuff of this world once in a while and just focus on the Lord. Now, how do we do that? Well, let me give you four factors I see in these verses about prioritizing God into our daily life. Number one, the truth of God's supremacy. Not a bad word, supremacy, that's a good word. Let's look at verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Kingdoms have kings. Here he says, make God your king. We respect our leaders and our kings here on earth. We try to. But he says, we need to make sure that we always make God as our supreme one. He is to be the one given the dominion of our life and the authority and the master of our life. Offer him 100% control, sovereignty in everything, because it matters. Just like we see in David's amazing farewell address in First Chronicles chapter 29. Here he says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness. Thine is the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. And all that is in heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom. Oh, Lord, and thou art exalted as head of the law. You could say it any better than that. Again and again, he said, God is king. God is number one. God is supreme. He is our master. Verse 12. Riches and honor come of you, of me. Thou reignest over all, and in thine hand are the power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Folks, you can't get a better ascribing of all to God than that right there. I mean, that is the most encompassing, I think, entire scripture where someone just said, it's God. It's all God, so He is owed by all. In fact, in your life and mine, someone or something will have first place. I grew up in church. Very blessed to have been born even on a Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, my mom and dad used to tell me, my mom would kind of shake her head and say, he left and he went to church. I was born on Sunday. So that's what they did back in the day. But someone in our life was raised in church. We were growing up in church. I remember an illustration that my dad used and others used as well. Maybe you've heard it. If you haven't, let me give it to you. I was actually listening as a teenager one day when I heard this. The speaker said that in everybody's life, there is a cross and a throne. You could say a cross and a crown. Jesus is either on that throne or self is on the throne. If self is on the throne, then Christ is on the cross. That's not what we want. What we want is to put ourselves on the cross and to put Jesus on the crown of our life. He should be on the throne of our life. Put the crown on Jesus. We are the ones who should take the cross. That's God's plan. Everybody has somebody that's on the throne of their life. It's either self or Christ or something else. But God's plan is for us to say with David, Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. And thou art exalted above all. Now let's look at more depth of this word, but. Now that little phrase there, but, means rather. Rather than worrying, 
rather than living like a pig, and rather than being a person with little faith, remember he had just said that our, our people who have little faith, and that's not good. Because we ought to, even a little faith, but do we have it in a big job? Rather than being consumed by the stuff of this world, seek the kingdom. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? It's a biblical phrase. Some might kind of wonder if it sounds kind of uh, old worldish, but the truth of the matter is the kingdom of God means simply this that it means several things, but it could mean, uh, generally speaking, that there is the eternal God who is sovereign over every universe that there is. God is sovereign. That is the kingdom of God. But there is a more commit end. There, we could even extend it to say that there is a coming kingdom, a millennial kingdom, which is a very real kingdom that's going to be on earth. But in the book of Romans and other places, it's more narrowly focused to say this. That the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule in our heart. When we're willing to submit to God being our king, he comes into our life. And the kind of things that this king brings in, peace, joy, and love, these are rules and laws of the kingdom of the Lord. Seeking the kingdom of the Lord is not just sitting on a rock, contemplating God, letting the waves crash there. We had the joy of being a beautiful Pacific Grove for few hours this week, and out there, wonderful Asilomar. If you know as pretty as that place is, one could go there and just say, you know what, I, this is what it is, it's just a worship God. But I think there needs to be a little clarification. I remember very well being a young father of a large family. It's a huge amount of time, energy, resources necessary into raising a family. There are, is the fixing of food, there is the repairing of cars, there's getting the children ready, there's the educating of them, there's the comforting of them, there's the disciplining of them, there's the teaching of them. The fact of the matter is that consumes a lot of time. If you have just one child, it takes a lot. If you have two or three, it just multiplies. At the same time, I was pastoring a growing ministry. And so with all of those things, I can tell you it's an amazing privilege to be sure but a big and big, deep responsibility. And it seemed like to me, in very there was some pious peace, maybe I could say, leaving me feeling unspiritual because I wasn't just sitting on a rock at a salon, contemplating the goodness of God, meditating and worshiping and quoting Scripture 24 hours a day. Folks, I wish I could say that's the way it was, raising all those children. But the reality of life is that the things of this world consume a lot of our energy. They consume a lot of our emotional equity. They consume a lot of our time. They just consume a lot of us. But while it consumes our time and our energy, what Jesus is saying is, do never let it consume your priorities, your heart. Where's your heart? Yes, things in this world just are very consuming. I mean, fixing a car can go from maybe a few minutes to days. And you should always remember what and why you're doing all this work. Get and see the big picture. Get to the place where you seek, proactively keep centering, coming back to God, Jesus Christ. Is He Lord? 
of your life. That's what Jesus made it as plain as it could be in Luke chapter 6, verse 10. He said, centering your mind on the Lord and seeking the Lord isn't just feeling. It isn't just contemplating or meditating. It is doing something. That's what he said there in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why call you me Lord, Lord? You just keep saying Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say. And so, focusing on the Lord and putting Him first is something real. It is something very uh, part of who we are. But it doesn't always mean that we spend all day doing that. It just means it's the priority of our life. Don't forget what we're doing. Pauline and I like to watch older British mystery series occasionally. I've noticed over the years, I'm such a forgetful hearer of those, we can go back after a few years and we can watch all the same shows again. I never remember who did it. However, I do have a default I always go to, the woman. <laughs> and uh, you, you go back and watch those mysteries, always the ladies are good. But I will tell you, in God's holy word, He does. He's the one that we have should put our focus on. And so, the truth of God's supremacy, we should make sure we put Him First. Now the translation of that. What does it actually mean to put the kingdom of God first? We'll notice the verse says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not enough to be proactive about His kingdom. We must seek the righteousness of God. How does this very important doctrine translate into real time? How? By not only making him in his rightful place, but his righteousness. By a practical holiness. Not only seeking his glory, but seeking godliness. If we're going to chase something, don't chase the world, he says. Chase the word of God. Seek it. Follow after God. Make it a priority to keep coming back to God. That's why I was, I'm going to tell you, I'm very proud of you for coming on Sunday and being there. Those of you watching, I know we're trusting that you're not feeling well and you'll soon be with us, but making sure that's part of your daily and your weekly life. That's what Paul said in First Timothy chapter 6. Beloved Paul said to his young preacher friend Timothy, he said, there are some things you must leave. Don't even stick around to see if you can beat that temptation. Just run. Run to your life. Then he said, there are some things you must follow. The great outline for preaching. Look at verse 11. For thou, O man of God, Women of God, men of God, flee some things. Run. Run for your life. And then follow. Pursue. That's what Jesus is saying. Seek. Pursue. That's an everyday practical righteousness. What are you supposed to pursue? Righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love. Patience. Meekness. That's what God is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, seek to be a loving person. Seek to be a patient person. Seek to be a person with humility and meekness. That is seeking the righteousness of God. What's strange about us is that because of who we are, we typically pursue cars, we pursue money, or we pursue houses or clothes or whatever else. We need to turn that around and seek God first. How do we do that? And there give you four ways to pursue God's righteousness. Number one, recognize that the first moment of every day is God. The first moment of every day is God's 
the old gospel chorus says it this way, I woke up this morning feeling fine. I woke up with heaven on my mind. I woke up with joy in my soul. I knew my Lord I love what busy David, leading a country and yet not too busy to seek the Lord. Psalm 5, verse 3, My voice shalt thou hear when in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer to thee. Now, some people's lives are kind of backwards and work nights. Nice, you can adjust it with that. The fact of the matter is, in the morning, God needs to hear your voice. You need to get up and spend some time with Him. Get out of bed. Rather than letting the alarm scare the fire out of you and saying, Good morning, Lord. You ought to be able to say, Good morning, Lord. I am awake and I am here to serve you today and to live for you. On the practical side, can I just share with you one habit that really helps me? And that is to raise your hand to the Lord. Now, you know, it's an interesting thing, but... Doctors tell us about raising your hand. They say physically it has amazing benefits. It opens the chest and you're able to breathe while oxygen comes in. It improves your posture. It's rid of that tech neck, they call it nowadays. It releases tension, decreases low back pain, improves balance, lengthens and strengthens the spine. It energizes just lifting your hands. But spiritually, I'm not sure what it is, but I will tell you, it is incredible for me how it helps. And it really helps me focus. If I'm kind of drifting, thinking about this or that, or kind of droopy, just tired or whatever, it's just trying to wake up, it is incredible what raising your hand does. Did you know over 20 times in Scripture, God says to raise your hand? In fact, He says to raise your hand in the sanctuary. I know some folks aren't real super comfortable with that. That's okay, but you know, we're not trying to make you be something you're not. But on the other hand, I would tell you, you might want to just kind of try it out sometime because it's an amazing blessing. It is a posture of victory. It is a posture of humility. I need you, Lord. It is a posture of, Lord, I'm waiting for your gift. It's a posture of humility and begging, and it's just amazing. And so... I'm going to act as your spiritual doctor here for a few moments, and I prescribe for everyone in this room, young and old, that tomorrow morning you wake up and you lift your hands. Lift your hands up. Back. Why don't we try it right now? Okay. Lift your hands. Wave it. Okay. Oh, not too much. I'm getting seasick. Anyway. Um, all right. I know you do. All right. Recognize the first moment of your day is the Lord. Number two, recognize the first day of the week is God. Seek ye first. Do you know what Sunday is? Now, most people would say it is the weekend. But that's totally wrong. It is actually the week's beginning. It is not the weekend. It is the first day of the entire week. The beloved physician, Luke, gave us an Acts chapter 20, verse 7, he said the pattern for the disciples was upon the first day of the week, when they came together, that was their pattern. They came together. They didn't stay apart. They came together. They came together. 
they came together. It was not easy, but they came together. They had to walk a long way. It was not easy. They came together to break bread. They had fellowship. There was food there. They walked a distance. And then Paul preached them. Now, if you read the rest of the passage, I know he preached till midnight and people come out the window, but the fact of the matter is they met on the first day. I like that term, first day. You may have never seen this in the book of Matthew or seen it in this life, but Matthew chapter 28, verse number 1. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the sepulchre. He goes on to say, This is Jesus who was risen from the dead on the first day early. So there they were, early, first day. Now, Greek scholars. We wouldn't want to put myself in that category, but I would tell you what they say. That little phrase, in the end of the Sabbath, is actually at the end of the Sabbath. Or, from this day forward, no longer do they meet on the Sabbath day. At the end of the Sabbath, now Jesus, having risen from the dead, sanctified the first day of the week. Isn't maybe that exactly why in the book of Revelation, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hangs out of the Isle of Patmos, said, on the first day, the Lord's day. The Lord's day. I think it would be great. Now, I know in the English language, we have these days of the week called Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Unfortunately, they're named after Roman pagan gods. You know, be nice if we didn't have to say the word Sunday. And some of our Seventh-day Adventist friends will say, well, it's a pagan day. Well, the name is pagan. But the first day of the week is, in fact, the day when the church would meet together. That is exactly. And so, I think it would be great if we could just rename Sunday as first day. First day, or maybe even better, the Lord's Day. That got my favorite. The Lord's Day. And let me just say something. America needs to get back to the point where we prioritize the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. We need Bible-loving assembly. The need has never been greater. Did you know that social spending, that's money thrown into this administration and government, the so-called social problem, is the fastest-growing part of the American budget. It is now over 20% of the GDP. You would think then that we're spending almost a quarter of our income on social ills that we would have less crime, we would have less problems, we'd have so much better situation. However, we are actually seeing the exact opposite. In fact, researchers, for example, have found a startling increase in attempts of suicide by pre-teen children over the last five years, especially a five-fold increase, 400% increase of little, precious teenage girls trying to kill themselves. The left is pushing the destruction of the nuclear family and biblical churches more than ever. They're trying to destroy the hard love that we have for our great country. And now, in the education system, and just about everywhere, even Disney, they're teaching children to pick their own pronouns and decide as they're growing up if they want to be a boy or a girl. In fact, this week, my wife walked into Coles in little, lovely low-dive. 
here, Cole and Lodi, happened to be walking by the children's section. There, a mannequin, a little girl, in the girl's section, wearing a top, were the words, Ask me my pronouns. Ask me my pronouns. No wonder they're so confused. If we just tell them that you're not a boy or a girl until you choose what you are. My friends, we must continue to pray passionately for our country and, may I say, vote more. And do so this week, please. God, raise up Christian schools and homes and Sunday schools and Bible-believing churches that will stand for the things of God. We need to prioritize God. Amen. Recognize the first moment of our day is God. And the first day of the week is not Sunday. It is first day. It is the Lord's day. And number three, recognize the first fruits of your income. Actually, it's all God's, but God asks for the first ten back. Solomon, in fact, told his son in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, he said, Do the honorable thing. Honor the Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of all thy increase. It's dishonorable not to do so. If you're eight years old and you have a long income, or if you're 88 and have late income, we should give God the first fruits, not after you paid the Verizon bill, but before. Now, let's suppose one day you decided to come to church and you just had it in your mind, I want to bring the pastor a nice little treat. So you bake up a big old plate of baklava, just about my most favorite thing in the world, and you knew the pastor loved it. And it was your intention to give the pastor a nice, delicious plate of that wonderful Greek pastry dessert, baklava. The only thing is, on your way to church, you stop at the gas station, you thought, well, I'll give a little to the Yes, then it's there, so you gave one to him. Then you stopped by the grocery store, you had to pick up something, you gave some to the clerk there, and you realized you probably needed to stop by over there at the down at the other the, the friend's house on the way, and so you said, Hey, here's some box of that. By the time you came to church, all you had on that plate was crumbs. You walked in there and you said, Well, Pastor. I started out with a full plate, but now by the time I've come to church, I don't have anything. But here are the crumbs, Pastor. Now, folks, please don't do that to me. That will scar me for life. I'll, just, I'll be wondering, where's all that baklava go? I will tell you, folks, too many Christians in this world say that is exactly what we do. We pay this, and we buy this, and we do this, and we give it to this, and then when it comes to God, it's crumbs. Nothing left but crumbs. You say, well, Pastor, if I gave 10% of my income, I wouldn't have enough to, to live on. And I suggest to you this morning the reason that you may not have enough to live on is because you're not there. You say, well, it's tough out there. Yes, it is. It is really an increasingly challenging scenario financially for many people. All the more reason I want that promise in my back pocket. I do not want to face this life knowing that I have robbed God. I just don't want to do it. See, he first became with God in his righteousness, and things will be added unto you. And I want to testify to you today that with the blessing of all these wonderful children the Lord gave me to raise, and with single income, we had some lean times. But I will tell you, during those leanest of times, that's exactly when I doubled down 
fact, even to this day, sometimes when kind of an unexpected expense comes, I will make sure I check it. Did I give God the first 10%? I want to tell you, I don't want to fall into that group that say, if I can afford it, I'll do it. My friend, I will tell you something. If I could afford it, that's a, that's a joke. Absolute joke. I would have never been able to give to the Lord. Because you can't, I couldn't have ever afforded it. You do it because it's the honorable thing. It's the right thing to do. And then just watch. God will provide. I love the old story that told the poor. The story is told of an old a poor widow lady, excuse me, with five kids, who every day came to her front porch, raised her hands to heaven and prayed out loud, Lord, you know that I have no food in my Feed my children. Please, Lord, provide for our daily needs. Her next door neighbor was one of those atheists. He was just sick and tired of all her church talk and spiritual talk. One day he decided he'd teach her a lesson. He bought several bags of groceries, set them on the front porch, rang her doorbell, and he hid in the bushes. The widow came out, saw those groceries on her doorstep there, and she burst into joyful praise. Thank you. God for supplying all my needs. Thank you for answering my prayer. I bless you, Lord. Oh, God, you're good. Just then the atheist stepped out from behind the bush and arrogantly said, Ma'am, God did supply your needs today. I did. How foolish it is to trust a non-existent God and give Him credit for something He didn't do. But without even taking a breath, that woman just burst into another breath. Dear God, you're so wonderful. You not only provided food for me today, but you got the devil to pay for it. <laughs> yes, sir. God provides. <laughs> Number four, we're going to recognize the first place of our heart is God. Jesus told those precious people 2,000 years ago, sitting on that hillside, you better put God in your decision maker process. I got counsel. Did you get counsel from the Bible? Well, I thought about it, yeah, but did you really go to God about it? Did you pray about it? I mean, seriously pray. Not up, you know, on the way to buy something, you know, or whisper a prayer. We should not make one decision without at least having an attitude of that. Paul said it so powerfully about the sterling character of the Corinthians. Many of the Corinthians in that church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And this they did. They went on to do things for the Lord. But first they gave themselves to the Lord. They said, Lord, among all the other things we're doing, my life is an offering to you. Is your life an offering to the Lord? Many of us want God in our lives, but unfortunately we want God in our lives like I discovered one day about our car. We had purchased a, a car, and one day had one of those uh, flats that you get, those irritating flats that crazy. Keep standing. I went to the trunk to get the flat uh, spare tire, and there was this tiny little donut thing. I that's the tire guy called it later, and uh, I put that on my car there. But you know, our friend, God doesn't want to be the spare tire in our life, or he certainly doesn't want to be the donut in our life. He wants to be the steering wheel. Make God the one who is the pilot, 
That's what we're wanting God for. Jesus went to the cross for me. He shed His precious blood for me. He certainly then should deserve our first choice in everything we do in our life. The truth of God's supremacy, the translation of God's supremacy in the everyday life, make Him holy. And then number three, the treasure of God's supremacy. Look at the amazing promise. Things will be added unto you. The last part of verse 33. Things will be added unto you. Things. God's not against things. He made all the things of this world. He's a wonderful God. Just look at the beautiful flowers for a minute. You don't believe God is extravagant. God loves things. Folks, you can't put things first. You must put God first. And then He'll add the things to it. If we put things first, then we'll have problems. If we put God first, then He gives us the things. That's what God wants us to do. This world, people spend all their lives wrapped up in physical things. Very little thought about spiritual Jesus said to that group out there, He said, let's turn this around. Everybody around you is thinking about things. And if God fits in, okay. He said, here's what I want you to do. Think about God, His Word, how we can benefit the world with the Bible, pray, spend your time living a holy life. Think about God. Put God first, and then He'll add to you the things in your life. Here's the promise. I'll give it to you. This is not a new concept. David certainly said that. Psalm 84, verse 11, he said, walk uprightly, and no good thing will God will Paul told Timothy in his great epistle there in chapter 4, he said, Godliness has an amazing promise. It has a promise in the life that now is. A lot of times people say, well, yeah, live spiritual, live godly, pray. That's all about heaven stuff. It's all about, no, Paul said, it's about the life that now is. It's very physical. Godliness affects your physical life. Amazing. I think a great Old Testament illustration of Solomon, Second Chronicles chapter 1, he prayed, he went to God, and he could have basically had anything. It's kind of one of those almost genie-in-a-bottle moments. Pray, and I'll give you whatever. And Solomon prayed for wisdom, and God gave him all the things along with that. Jesus wasn't just promising these people health and wealth. He was just simply saying, put God and His Word first and step back, and just watch what God does. Pastor and scholar Martin Lloyd joins Martin Lloyd. <laughs> By the way, great commentaries. He said it kind of Calvinistic in their outlook, but kind of the bookful is it's the excellent for you. Here's what he said: It's not an accident that the Puritans of the 17th century in America became wealthy people in the 18th. It was not because they hoarded wealth. It was just that they lived for God and His righteousness. And the result was they didn't throw money away and so their wealth built. Maybe I could say it this way. They lived intentionally for God and became incidentally rich and wealthy. There's a fourth thing I want to look at this morning and I quickly go to that. And that is the trampling of God's purpose. Jesus finishes this topic with a caution. He said it would be terrible to do all of this and then to borrow trouble for tomorrow. Verse 34. Take no thought for tomorrow. What? Don't even worry about tomorrow? No. Tomorrow will take care of the things of itself. Sufficient under the day is the evil. 
that little phrase that they gave to the word probation. It doesn't read this way. Sufficient unto the day is the sin thereof. God is not actually talking about sin here, although some problems are a result of sin together. The word translated evil there has both a active definition and a passive definition. Actively, yes, if you were to look up the Greek word there, you would see that it probably mostly was translated foul. But in its passive translation, it simply means trouble or problem. As in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember now thy Creator, the days of thy youth, while the evil or days of trouble. All humans have evil days, meaning trouble and trouble. How many of you have had troubles, let's say, some sort of trouble, big or small, this week? You'd be honest about it, you had some troubles this week or some sort of week this week. Alright? If it happened this past week, do you think it's probably going to happen this coming week? So tomorrow you might have trouble. And Tuesday, Wednesday. The fact of the matter is, troubles are our part and parcel. That's what Edith said, that smug friend of Joe, who occasionally got it right, but he got this one right, Job chapter 5, verse 7, man is born for trouble. I mean, as surely as the sparks fly upwards. I've never seen him do anything but that. Jesus said, I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm just trying to tell you, every day you wake up has a certain amount of evil in it, meaning trouble. Every day has trouble with it. It's just part of this cursed world we live in. Folks, there are troubles out there. I mean, you can't say that there's none. There's nuclear threats, mass shooting, COVID. Well, that's all I mean, there's uh, unprecedented inflation. I mean, there are troubles we are facing this week. Yet Jesus stated very unequivocally, absolutely do not worry about those things. Don't worry. You just get up. Serve God, give Him the first part of your day, give Him the first part of your heart, give Him your resources, just put God first, and tomorrow will take care of itself. Meaning, there's enough strength that God has for tomorrow. You don't have to borrow tomorrow's trouble, because tomorrow, God will give you the grace for tomorrow. If, you're, if, you, if you worry about tomorrow, you're borrowing tomorrow's trouble without today's grace. Hundred-year-old Moses said it this way: He was leaving off the scene. God told him he was leaving. And in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-three, verse twenty-five, he said one of the most powerful statements in the Old Testament. He said, "As your days, what's for your strength be?" He didn't say your strength will be there, and then you'll have trouble. No, he said the way it's going to happen is you're going to have trouble, and then strength will come. I wish I could tell you that you're going to have this unbroken. You know, beautiful feeling all the time, but it's not that way. You're going to have problems, grace. Problems, grace. Problems, grace. Problems, grace. Very seldom is it grace, problems, grace, problems. It usually follows. Your all wise God said, Look, He, you can be sure that God will be there for you tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Someone once said there are two days that God never gives strength for. He doesn't give strength for yesterday because you don't need it anymore. He doesn't give strength for tomorrow because it hasn't happened yet. David, who had as many troubles as anybody ever did, 
said something amazing. I love it. Psalm 103. God knows our praise. Verse 14. He remembers we're done. He knows our praise. He knows how much the load we can take. And He, he takes His grace and He gives it according to that load. Now there are one-ton trucks, two-ton trucks that have a load. They, you cannot overload them. There'll be a blowout. We're going to pick up some laminate flooring and all those SUV. And someone suggested you might want to put a big load of them. But you might want to find out the payload of your SUV. We found out it wouldn't take all the time we had to have a truck. The fact of the matter is, each of us have different payloads. Some are SUVs, some are two-ton trucks. But whatever the case, God has the strength for our frame, he says. Whatever frame we have, God knows what we're made out of, and He'll be there for us. And he went, Christian author said it this way, God has not promised to take skies. God has not always promised skies. Always flowers, prune pathways, all our lives do. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way. Grace to the child, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying And that's exactly what our God has. He has that undying love. We will seek Him first. You can be sure He remembers our love. I look out and our eyes are closed here this morning. Speak. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.